This is the Machination Log for December 28th, 2016, and I'm being joined over the airwaves from whatever city Vinny is from in North Carolina. Vinny, how are you doing? Vinny's doing all right. Joining you from Hillsborough, North Carolina. There we go. There. Little town. We've got hippie communes. We've got upscale restaurants. We've got it all, really. We've got representative sampling from all over. Sounds nauseating. Vinny, what the hell are you doing in Hillsborough? I'm living. I'm reading. Uh, I'm watching the news, and I'm, I'm pretty upset about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm containing my rage, as you can tell, uh, and channeling it into something more productive, which is why I'm here with you today. I uh, think. Yeah, I believe so. We're here to talk about uh, everyone's current favorite topic probably for the next two months, uh, fake news. You think, you think two months? You think that's the shelf life on this? Yeah, I do. Really? I, I think we'll find something. Look. I think we've demonstrated that I'm I'm pretty good at guessing how long these things are going to go for. But um, <laughs> um, anyway, I won't mm-hmm. I won't drag that any further. Um, fake news has been around for a long, 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 long time. As long as long, people long have, time, as, as Matt Stoller pointed out, long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, Vinny, you picked this topic, and I will admit that I sort of goaded you because I wanted to have you on the podcast since you seem like someone who actually knows what they're talking about in a variety of topics that would be interesting to discuss. And this is one of them. Once in a while, yeah. Once in a while, I think I know what I'm talking about. I ramble a lot, too. That's perfect for the format. Um, Exactly. Take it away. What the hell is up with this fake news thing? Well, the fake news thing, we got to approach it from... I I like the angle that you approached it from when we were uh, talking about the planning here. we got to we got to figure out what type of fake news we're going to talk about. Are we talking about fabrications? Are we talking about spin? Are we talking about falsified or anonymous sourcing? Um, All three of these things present unique problems, probably have unique solutions and impact disparate groups. So if we want to have the discussion, I think we probably need to break it down uh, and do one at a time. Uh, Don't you think? Uh, We could. I, that seems a little dangerous and disparate, given that we're uh, we're not sure what we're going to do about any of them. I don't think. I mean, do you have one? Do you have one that per- seems like it is the root of the problem? Like, if one of the types of fake news were to go away, that most of the phenomenon here would disappear. Oh, it's it's absolutely the spin side. Um, we have to assume that this current boom in actual fake news, completely fabricated stories that people are accepting as fact is the result of the diminished credibility of traditional media. Do you agree with me there? Um, I think so. I just don't know that that's a foregone conclusion. Perhaps not a foregone conclusion because we can't predict the future with any certainty. However, if we're looking at the history, it certainly seems as if the traditional media outlets offered people a version and an analysis of a reality that seemed in line with the lives that they were living, the vast majority of them would be less likely to turn to external sources like Breitbart, like Infowars, like Macedonian teenagers who are posting stories on Facebook to like Vox. be the source for their news. Um, like what? Like Vox. <laughs> <laughs> like, like Vox, yes. Exactly. Um, <laughs> So I have to think that that the issue comes from spin in traditional media. Uh, and so if we want to work towards getting people to accept uh, 
realistic news sources. We have to present them with a realistic vision of reality. And that seems to be that seems to be the only way out, because uh, I've thought a lot about the, the actual fabricated news and without sacrificing a lot of the values that we seem to take for granted. I'm not sure if there's an answer on that front. It just seems weird. And I, I to be clear, I, I think I do agree with that in principle that uh, the spin is what causes a lot of the other detritus around this. Um, but it, there's always been spin on the news. There's always been spin on the news. Yes. Um, What's different now? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> well, the incentivization changed, didn't it? The incentivization changed because whereas previously you had three primary news outlets that hundreds, well, tens of millions of people tuned into every night, those three news agencies could generally agree on the facts because there wasn't really an incentivization to distort the facts. It may have been presented through a certain lens, and that's where the spin you're talking about has always been present. But now you have news entities that are controlled by competing titans that want their vision of the world to be the one that wins. And so the reporting of the facts takes something of a backseat to a reinforcement of a particular narrative and a particular worldview. Um, and this isn't strictly true because as mentioned in conversations that we've had, you can find good, honest reporting in most of the major news outlets still, but there are overarching themes at work that feel a bit more sinister than they did previously because these outlets are willing to play fast and loose with the facts in a way that they weren't. But at the same time, I mean, we, we do still essentially let them get away with that. I mean, this is not this, this problem while it has actually been identified in a public sphere, it's, it doesn't seem like there's any shot of it going away, given that most people seem more than willing to read the news still, even if they don't all pick up a newspaper. Okay. So if you want to, if you want to broach that subject, that gets into a much broader question. That is how do we make, like we have created a meritocracy, correct? The question becomes, how do you make the meritocracy work as it's intended to, where success is rewarded and failure is, I don't want to say punished because punished sounds a little harsh, but how are you held accountable for your failures? I think that within this current media climate, especially with legacy media companies, there is very little accountability for failure. Um, So even if people are aware when they're reading the news that something is wrong and they're willing to continue doing it, there doesn't seem to be a way to channel that displeasure or that knowledge into meaningful change um, in how the news is presented. And so I liked, I like what current affairs is doing the way that uh, (laughs) Amber Ali Frost described it was they wanted to copy the economist model, right? People read the economist because they think, Hey, I want to know about economics. Uh, why don't I read The Economist? That sounds really smart. So these guys name their magazine Current Affairs because that sounds really smart, and they publish from a much more, I would say, they're, they're a pretty straightforward uh, news organization. They analyze, they report news, they do so with a paucity of spin. Um, but, but you don't trust them implicitly just because they say that. No. I mean, is there anyone that you take at face value that way? Only naked capitalism. And that's more of a blog than a news organization. Um, 
more of a link aggregator. They do some analysis, but um, without a singular focus and naked capitalism, singular focus is finance. I think it's very hard to build a modern news organization that can be taken entirely at face value because the demands of content and the demands of constant updating mean that you're going to have to put out a lot of material just to compete. And so anyone choosing which news or news outlets to trust has to understand that and do more than just say, I trust this outlet. You have to start thinking about the authors of articles. You have to start thinking about which authors you trust, which worldviews you trust, which worldviews are questionable and assess things that way rather than looking at it as a, uh, as an organization by organization approach, I think. Do you think anyone manages to either curate or just straight up manage their authors, journalists in such a way that seems like a model going forward? You know, I kind of, I thought about this. I thought it would be really, it would be interesting to work on a database where you collected works of prominent journalists and figured out exactly where they stood so you could determine their biases. Because I think one of the things, this is the thing that I've heard used to happen, but I didn't live in the era, so I don't really know. But when I talked to people who worked and lived in, in news-related environments uh, in the 70s, 60s, and 80s, one of the things that was mentioned was that people were much more willing to disclose their biases. So take someone like Jeffrey Goldberg, who's now the editor of The, uh, the Atlantic, recently promoted uh, the the man used to be an Israeli prison guard, which may have shaped his worldview to some extent. I feel like I'd want to know that. I'd want to know that, but that's never really disclosed when you read any of his writing. Uh, he writes very frequently on Israel. That's a real source of bias. Um, people just aren't willing to disclose that anymore. So if we could create a database where these biases were investigated, um, it may help people to figure out who to trust and who not to trust. It, um, is that a problem of obscurantism though? Because I feel like it's, I mean, the fact that you know that means that it's possible to know it. Um, I'm, I'm curious if there is, if there is some degree of transparency there that exists, but is simply not internalized by the people who read the stuff. Um, which I mean, it sounds like I'm blaming the public for all of this and that's because I am blaming the public for virtually all of this, but the, um, well, I, I, you know, I, I put a lot of blame on the public too, but at some point you have to decide what is, what is media's responsibility to society? And if media's responsibility of society is, or media's responsibility to society is to create an informed citizenry, then it has to start with media. It can't start with the citizens. They can hold media accountable, but it has to start with media, doesn't it? Uh, it's chicken and egg a little bit. I will agree, but there is when I say when I say the public, I'm not I'm not talking in the vaguest possible sense about just you know the either the kids these days or the the retards in all the states that voted for Trump or all those. And I'm obviously using all those terms pejoratively um, for effect. But right, right, there is there is no ethic. There seems to be no ethic about this that is ingrained in us anymore. If it ever, nope. I mean, granted, probably never was, but <laughs> that, uh, that ethic doesn't seem was, to exist. I think it was probably it was probably more ingrained by civics classes and ethics classes that used to be pretty common parts of educational curriculums that seem to have kind of faded away with time. And that's that's a separate discussion about 
who wields the levers of power and what they want to get out of education and what they want people to be informed about. <laughs> I, I suppose, but it I, it's pretty close to, it's pretty adjacent to this conversation. I mean, education dictates, I mean, I didn't pay all that much attention in school, but I didn't have to because I was special. Uh, but my case notwithstanding, I mean, what what you learn in school does matter that way. And even if we can't find all these things that are supposed to bind us together anymore because we're all too busy being mad about being mad, um, some of that stuff seems like, could it be that we are are building a child base out of a cynicism that we can actually exercise that responsibility out of them? And I suppose, I guess we sort of found out that Maybe that is true that you can, in fact, do that. But and do you think anybody's actually thinking that? I think that they probably are, but I can't be too cynical about that because the ability to change that is within our grasp and it's something that could be implemented and affected very easily. Easily may be the wrong word, but I like the way that. Obama put it in his interview recently with uh, with Ta-Nehisi Coates. He he talked about early childhood education for everyone. How quickly a program like that if implemented nationwide would create real change in how we educate our kids if everyone was given a high quality early childhood education because then you would have an entire generation coming up that would have access to at least in this one regard equal opportunity. And I think about that as applied to the reintroduction of civics and ethics in school. We may currently have a cohort that lacked that, but we could fix that very easily and have the next class that's coming up educated in those things, right? So sure, we may have a situation now where people are more or less left to their own devices when it comes to figuring out what they want out of their journalism and what they want out of their media. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of them come to conclusions that are the ones that just reinforce whatever worldview they have in their heads rather than challenge it. Um, but that's a reversible situation. That's something that we could actually work to change and change effectively. So that's it. That's at the next generation level. What do we do about our generation? <laughs> what do we do about the millennials? That's where I have less hope, right? We give them we give them the resources. Everybody knows that there's something wrong. Everybody feels that something about the world that we're living in is is wrong, right? So we give the ones that have that feeling the resources to figure out what's wrong and who's lying to them and who's spinning to them and who's fabricating sources for them. And we kind of give them the means to find better content, right? Yeah. But they're going to have to find it on their own. They're going to have to find us and find the people that want to help them on their own. Nobody's going to push them in that direction necessarily. And that's a shame because a lot of them will fall back into the easier path. You had mentioned a little while ago, uh, Adam Curtis, who, uh, you actually turned me on to Chapo, who didn't necessarily turn me on to Curtis, but I haven't heard an interview from anyone else on the subject. Did you actually watch uh, – Adam Curtis just put out a documentary called Hypernormalization. Did you watch it? I did. I did, and I, I really appreciated the Chapo interview because I felt that 
and they point this out a few times, the movie itself is almost three hours long and is exceptionally uh, tangent prone. And I thought it made it a little bit unfocused. And so I really appreciated uh, Curtis going on there and being pressed a little bit to clarify some of his views because I got a much better sense of what he meant by hypernormalization just listening to him on that podcast for an hour than I did in three hours of that documentary. Yeah, I uh, I had that documentary recommended to me by a, uh, by, I, I don't have to say a friend, by Nicole, who listeners will know and uh i didn't like it at all i thought it uh it was it was too long and yet it was also way 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 too short for how much he was trying to cover exactly yeah he needed to he needed to pare it down and focus it a little bit better but i i loved that interview i took a lot away from that and actually i only listened to it for the first time a couple days ago and i really want to go through a few more times and make sure that i pick up all of what he was putting down but what one of the ideas that he comes up with ties very much into what i think sort of <laughs> results in where we're at as far as news malaise goes is the title is hypernormalization and it's a reference to the idea of living in a society where things aren't quite right but you have nothing to compare it to so right. you have to take things to some degree at face value and it's a very lazy way to go through life like it is it is possible to maybe find truths out there if you actually bother to search for them but it's substantially easier, and it's reinforced by everyone around you who is also failing to do this, uh, to just assume that the truth is not out there. Right. Which comes back to the first thing that we talked about. The media exists in that state of hypernormalization where they have to – there is – you know what the Overton window is. I don't. There is, the Overton window is the uh, – length from left to right on the political spectrum of acceptable discourse in mass media. So something like universal basic income too far to the left on that Overton window. So it just doesn't get discussed, which something is like deliciously ironic, but uh, right. Something like concentration camps too far to the right. So it doesn't get discussed, whatever. And I think what we're finding is that in the state of hypernormalization for the media, there is a centrist line that cannot be broached. Uh, without severe pushback from who knows. I, I don't really know where the pushback would come from precisely, but everybody seems very terrified of crossing it. Um, and so when you, have, uh, when you have that media that contributes to that, that sense that something is wrong, people are going to look elsewhere. And Facebook news is easy. It's easy. It's comforting. It says, yeah, we know things suck. It's because this president is screwing you by doing this, that, and the other thing that he may not have actually done. Um, here's a question for you. Huh. Obviously, the truth is a tenuous thing these days, and facts are tenuous things these days. However, do you, do you attribute part of the fake news problem to Facebook's elimination of its human editing department? No, and I'm going to cite an example that you uh, you brought up that I was not entirely aware of. Uh, there's a survey. I'll let you describe the survey since you're the one that read about it uh, regarding the veracity of uh, information regarding the CIA's disclosure about Russia. You're talking about the YouGov survey? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So um, this is <laughs> something I would have brought up later uh, with regards to Russia, but uh, it appears as of this recent survey that 52% of Democrats believe that Russia tampered with voting totals 
and influenced vote counts in our most recent presidential election. I don't ever want to hear a liberal tell me that only conservatives are stupid enough to fall for fake news. Um, And the reason why here is a little tangled and it's not nearly as vindictive as it sounds here, uh, as I probably just made it sound. Um, That impression is not fake news to the best of our knowledge. um, The idea that the CIA is claiming Russia hacked the election is not has not in fact ever been reported that's it's it's not actually not, not true. To our knowledge not yeah, to our it, knowledge no it's not actually true and we did not ever see it forecast anywhere and yet without facebook's trending informing us of this fact more than half of liberals believe it's the case and so uh, let me bring up a point here for a second i think that when we talk about the fake news coming out of Facebook, the pure fabrications, we don't need to talk about the the fact that it happens on its face. We need to we need to know where it goes, right? What it creates, and what it creates is a false narrative in people's heads that they can latch onto. Exactly. So even lacking the fake news element, the same thing has happened to Democrats where a false narrative is being created and it's a result of a Russian hysteria, which we can get into, but you, you were going to answer the question. I, I feel like that is my answer to the question. Okay. <laughs> I, that's, I, I, we can, I mean, we can, we can keep moving on it, but I, and it also, it sort of encapsulates what I think we both think about Russia, uh, which is that, I mean, they're, they're a shitty semi-dictatorship, but they're also just doing what they can. I mean, it's... right. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not entirely opposed to, I, I, I had a discussion uh, with someone who was decrying that Trump seems to be friends with Russia as if being friends with another power is implicitly against our own interests. And that, that just seems like a hyperbolic conclusion to reach. I think that we've gotten to the point where we're a little bit too dependent on data analysis um, in general in how we run society. <laughs> and I would point to the Clinton campaign's massive reliance on ADA, the, the algorithm that they were using to uh, determine potential turnout, where they needed to focus their efforts, whatnot, obviously fell flat on their face. But it is pretty clear, I think, uh, and this is in one of the New York Times articles I listed or linked to you, that the fake news problem on Facebook specifically became much more severe when that human element was removed from their editorial department. Um, So when we talk about solutions, I do think that has to be part and parcel of any package, is is bringing a more human element back into the fold. Um, I don't think it would solve the problem necessarily, but isn't it it important to work in that direction? Maybe, but I'm also, I'm, I'm skeptical of <laughs> I'm skeptical of just assuming that data is to blame here because it is really just a tool and it's the reason why I think uh, why I think the the hysteria and the 52% number is uh, I consider that to be a standalone QED on whether or not the uh, the Facebook algorithms are doing a bad job or not the Facebook algorithms did not give anyone that impression I don't think they were, I do not think they were responsible for it. Probably not. No, but the, 
Okay, so here's the difference, right? On the conservative side, you have a conservative media ecosystem that will create a conspiracy, run with it, and then you'll get the fake news that reinforces that particular conspiracy's existence, right? Okay. Right? Is that not how it works? Oh, I... Yes, yes, that is how it works. Cool. Cool, yeah. So, on the left... And on the liberal side, you have, I think, a different uh, cycle where you have an entire media environment that is much more, I'm not going to say more mainstream because the right-wing media certainly seems pretty mainstream these days, but the traditional establishments of media power uh, work to create a particular narrative that doesn't require fringe elements to reinforce it in the liberal mind. Because it's given more legitimacy by these traditional media outlets than it would have otherwise. So when you have something like this Russia hysteria, you've got the Times, the Post, NPR talking about it nonstop. You have journalists who work for these outlets on Twitter talking about it nonstop, creating you know point to point to point to point to point conspiracy theories that tie everything together and paint Russia as this menace. And so the same level of fake news, purely fabricated news, is not required for the liberal mind to draw the conclusion that Russia influenced voting machines because you have these news outlets that still carry a shred of credibility with these people uh, saying this stuff over and over and over again. Right? And so I think the, I think the, the method of delivery and the creation of the narrative is different in, in either case. I I will wholeheartedly agree with that, but I also think that there is. I take a potentially too charitable a view in the way that conservatives digest the news. I know a lot of conservatives that read what they consider to be unfairly biased leftist news, and um, they just they just know to put a veneer on it. They um, it, it's weird. I I hadn't actually come up with this exact parallel, but it seems very appropriate here. Um, that liberals have all retreated to city centers. We own all the population. I just called myself a liberal. I guess I'm out now. Um, <laughs> that's okay. Um, yeah. I'm not a neoliberal, just to be clear. I think I've made that point abundantly I think, clear. Yeah, by no, now. I think um, I think your neoliberal bona fides can definitely be called into question. Yeah, um, <laughs> but the um, they. All go into city centers, and those are the places where Hillary wins. They are the massive establishments, uh, and then she loses out to the hinterlands with all of the smaller little outlets of questionable repute that right, collectively— I think, the, I think the statistic was Hillary won uh, by county uh, 32% of the geographic area of the United States, but 68% of the economic output. Uh, so that that definitely falls in line with what you're saying there. And that, but but how gloriously that maps to where the news comes from, because the left has all of the monoliths in their corner except for Fox News. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, you don't. Every conservative doesn't believe everything that Rush Limbaugh says, everything that Alex Jones says. They understand that they can't necessarily. And again, I'm maybe unfairly charitable here the way that I'd be unfairly charitable in saying that I know plenty of liberals are frustrated with the bias that they see in their own newspapers. Right. 
No, I don't. I don't think that's being unfairly charitable at all. Um, but in that in that way, it's it's weird that it mimics the geography, and it's it, though the methodology is different. I I do think it. Um, I think it results in the same thing, even if the underlying mechanisms are different. I think both oh. sides have the same problem. Yeah, totally. That was that that was what this YouGov survey about Russia hacking voting totals that that's what that painted for me. Uh, was the the picture of liberals as being susceptible to the same sort of hysterical narratives, especially under pressure uh, that conservatives are. And that's kind of the, the pressure point, I think, is really important because for a lot of conservatives, Barack Obama represented the potential end of, uh, you know, I, I hesitate to call it white supremacy, but certainly the traditional power structure in America and so that that pressure terrified a lot of people, and I think it made them more willing to buy into these more radical narratives of this guy as a Kenyan Muslim usurper, right? It made that it made it easier to be disloyal opposition because your very way of life, your very livelihood was threatened. And I think a lot of liberals right now feel the same way about Donald Trump, even though by all accounts he is probably just an inept crook, not the Antichrist. Um, yeah, I know it's making them much more susceptible to this Russia hysteria narrative. Yeah, no, I've got a, I have a running assurance with a variety of my friends right now who felt that pressure after the, uh, after the election results came in. I, I honestly don't believe he will do all that much. I think he will be, I, I don't necessarily, I don't go quite as far as one of the other examples of essentially fake news that he doesn't even want the job. I think he wanted to win. Um, but he is going to very rapidly get tired of being the president. I think. Oh I, yeah. He was tired. He was tired the first time he had to take that meeting with Obama. It seemed like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, he's not, he's not, his cabinet's kind of shitty, but I don't, I, I, I don't see this as it will be a, it, to the degree it's a test of the, the establishments of our democracy. I don't, I think it'll just be lame. I don't think it will actually suck. Um, certainly not for people like us. And that's why I was, uh, <laughs> this is kind of tangential, but do you think that the constant refrain that we see online, which is screw 2016, it's the worst year ever is revealing of the privilege of our, of the people that you and I generally communicate with, because the evidence for this seems to be that Donald Trump won an election and a lot of celebrities are dying. And I'm just thinking in my head, 2008, 2007, 2009, when millions of people were losing their homes, that seems like it was probably a worse time for the vast majority of Americans than 2016 has been. And yet, because we feel powerless and we've been forced to watch these things, these bad things kind of unfold in slow motion, the era of Twitter has made it such that this seems like the worst year ever. And I'm just thinking it could get so much worse, right? It's, the, it? uh, it's, it's a fake thing. I, I don't know that it necessarily bears a, um, it bears a resemblance to some kind of class struggle, but I, it's absolutely, there's a tongue in cheek to it. I mean, the tragedies of this year are, are superficial in a way. Like I'm not, I'm not like, marginalizing the death of famous celebrities, but they also are all famous celebrities because they did great things already. I mean, it's, yeah, that's it, true. it's tragic that, that those people that are, tangent, that's not really, that's not an important 
point of discussion. But let's um, dig into it, shall we? I mean, 2016, I John Oliver saw fit to um, <laughs> to evangelize that entire movement in his uh, his last his last act for 2016. Um, uh, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, okay. Well, he uh, he blows up a giant statue of 2016 and did uh, with a montage of shitty things that happened during the year. I mean, it was a great year in video games. I don't know what everybody was complaining about. But, uh, as you, yeah, as that's you a clash. Quite well, yeah, great, great, great year in video games. Yeah, no, <laughs> not a lot of great titles. A lot of good titles came out this year. But no, uh, to get back to to get back to fake news. Um, to get back to fake news. Okay, so I think we're in agreement that the weakness and the unwillingness to deviate from a certain centrist view of the universe uh, by traditional media outlets has certainly led to the willingness of the citizenry to accept fringe and conspiratorial and outright fake news sources as legitimate, right? Sure. Can those institutions, those legacy institutions be saved or is it going to be incumbent on our generation to build new ones from the ground up? I don't want the old institutions to survive this. I actually, <clears throat> I actually think that we need in, in much the same way that it would have been nice if at least one of the larger institutions in the crisis that you talked about not terribly long ago, 708, it would have been nice if a couple more people had, a. Uh, had actually forfeited fortunes for it. Um, oh, absolutely. I don't. I don't see any reason why the Washington Post should be given a second chance to be. I think it is the second most circulated newspaper at this point. I I have I have no idea what the numbers are. That could probably be true. It's not. They're number seven, but that's still way too high. I mean, it's if it's anywhere near true, it's kind of embarrassing. I mean, I, I want new institutions to come out of this. The people who matter within those institutions can find work elsewhere. It's kind of a freelancing gig, the journalism thing, I've been that's, told. That's kind of what I'm noticing, and that's why I, I made the point earlier about it being so important to be looking at the authors of writing as opposed to the institutions that they're writing for, because it is an exceptionally incestuous environment. A lot of my favorite writers will have pieces published in 10 to 15 different publications in a given year and that's just that's massive that's a hard thing to keep up with sure and that's good i like the inst- i like the existence of the institutions and i like that mobility because the institutions the editorial staff of an institution does give integrity's maybe too strong a word but it does give a it's flavor not, to what you're listening it's to. not no 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 it's not it's not integrity it's resources it's the ability to give someone the resources to do the type of investigative journalism that was highlighted in, uh, in spotlight, you know, it's where you have to work on something for months and months and months, as opposed to just publishing a take. Um, and that's what I worry about losing when we lose those institutions, because there are some new ones that are allowing for that sort of thing to happen. And I think, I think the intercept is probably the best example of that so far in terms of new institutions, uh, that, that support that type of journalism, but using the Vox model, the we're going to explain the Palestinian-Israeli conflict in 600 words model, that's not good for the future of 
informing people, of you, making sure that people know what's going on, right? Do, do you feel like you know what's going on in Syria? Yes. Okay. That makes you the first person I've talked to <clears throat> in the last week who... The only reason I know that, and I, I'll, I'll take a second to plug this, there's a historian named uh, Derek Davison, very intelligent guy. He writes a blog called, and that's the way it was. And uh, the guy focuses almost entirely on Middle Eastern history and politics and the Syrian conflict specifically. And he's just put his nose to the grindstone and covered this thing in depth for the past two or three years. And it is fantastic. Um, knows what he's talking about, writes without bias, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Um, admits when he doesn't know what is going on. And I think that's really important. Guys don't like to admit that, but there are elements of it that we just can't understand. Um, I'll link to that. No, I mean, that's, that's good to hear because understanding the situation in Syria, unless refugees are actively leaving the country, is impossible through most news sources. It's, yeah, it is. It is an absolute mess. Yep. And it's important. Like, what's happening in Syria was really important. It will remain really important, but it would have been nice to know about it while it was actually happening. Yeah, it would have. <laughs> it's just, Syria is a tough one. I don't, I don't feel like I have any answers on Syria better than anyone else does. Um, and I don't feel like knowing more about it has made me more able to assess the situation because of the level of complexity and because of the number of groups that are involved in the fighting. Um, okay, so maybe you actually are inconfident the way a lot of the people I was talking to were inconfident. I, I think the wording I used was have a handle on the serious yeah, situation. I mean, I could, yeah, I could tell you a little bit about what's going on there, but could I? Well, so can I. But offer solutions, no. <laughs> but exactly, no, that's that's. I don't know where to stand on it. Like that's and. But the reason the reason for that does come down to not actually thinking about it all that much. I I, I do believe that. I feel like someone would have a firm opinion somewhere about it if we actually bothered to talk about it more often. Oh yeah, I mean, of course they would. But <laughs> it's a failure of internationalism, right? We have all these potential solutions on the table that involve the removal of Bashar or the transition to democracy or whatever. And because we can't get the international community on the same page, we can't intervene in a meaningful way. And so we just kind of have to sit back and let Russia do whatever it is they're doing to prop up their man, which makes total sense, by the way. Like Russia's actions there make more sense than anything that's happening within the country itself. Uh, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a failure of internationalism see that's that just strikes me as a really lazy thing to blame it on it feels like that's well it, it feels like wanna, the same wanna, problem worldwide <laughs> sure we i mean we could go to the root causes and say well we can blame global warming uh because if the drought hadn't happened and it didn't force all the farmers into the cities and create class conflicts there then you could say that maybe the society would have been a little bit more stable for quite a bit longer um because as far as authoritarians go, Bashar was bad, but until this whole thing broke out, probably not the worst of them out there. Uh, I don't know. It's almost certainly a dead end to talk about it, but it's yep. just it's just one of those things that I it's it, it's one of the opportunity costs of the way that we ingest the news now. That is confusing and infuriating. I, I since the election, I feel like my focus has been more on the liberal side of things because 
there's the things you can change and fight for, and then there's the things you just kind of have to live with. And I think the conservative side is just something that I kind of have to live with at this point because I have very limited ability to engage or, or alter conservative thought processes. But I think it's much more important to build a cohesive movement on the left. So um, That's not true. You were totally singing and chanting, standing around and being a jerk at a uh, town hall meeting not terribly long ago. Right, right. Yeah, it was actually not a town hall. He uh, was arrested as part of a protest group that was protesting the uh, North Carolina General Assembly, the House and the Senate, uh, as they tried to strip the incoming Democratic governor of power. <laughs> so, you know, I say limited influence because we sat there and we chanted and we sang and got arrested and they did it anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, we delayed them for 30 minutes. But anyway, I, I try to keep my focus on liberalism and the left. And as far as the fake news goes, uh, we got to figure out why the focus has been so heavily pointed at Russia um, and why this narrative has emerged that so many people are willing to buy into of Russia as this, this insidious villain bent on destroying Western civilization because one, that's just patently false. It's a misconception. And two, Russian civilization at this point is basically Western civilization, just more corruption and deeper inequality. Uh, so it's not a it's not an ideological battle anymore. On number um, one, do you have a do you have a straightforward reason why that is false? Do you have a pithy well, response for it? The pithy response is, you know, Putin <laughs> Putin wrote an op-ed where he's like, are you stupid? We know that China has about a billion people and the United States has about 350 million people in it. Russia doesn't have the strength or the size to project forces into these nations and conquer them. So we're not looking to conquer the world. I think at most, and I, I know it's taking Putin at face value, obviously, there's always some subtext there, but... When you think about Russian intentions, it's tough to come to a conclusion that they're interested in doing more than perhaps reclaiming some of the territory that they lost after the USSR fell. Um, additionally, I think that there is a thread of thinking with regards to nations other than our own, especially ones that we come into conflict with, that paints them as villains and ignores the very human desire for self-preservation. I don't think we give enough credit to the idea of self-preservation and how it leads other nations to make their decisions. I think this happened a lot with Iran. I think it happened happens a lot with Russia. And it may not be true for organizations like Al-Qaeda, which is really, that's, you know, I, I came of age around the time of the Iraq war around the time of 9-11, and so that was really my first exposure to this uh, this portrayal of villainous entities hell-bent on destroying the United States. And in the case of Al-Qaeda, it kind of made sense. You know, maybe the capabilities were overstated, but their mission was very clearly to disrupt the U.S. and Western society in general. But when you have ancient nations <laughs> that have been generally very powerful entities in a region for a very long time to paint them with that same brush and uncritically accept any hysterical 
media types that are painting their motivations as such is not good. That's not a good way to be, right? It's really ignoring that aspect of self-preservation that runs through a lot of international politics. That sounds like the other mind's fallacy to me, but uh, everything does, so I'll drop that. I'm sorry, the the other mind fallacy? The other mind's fallacy, which is my favorite thing to talk about in the whole world, um, is the notion that you don't have enough meat space in your head to assess everyone else as a dynamic entity. So you tend to see everyone else's personalities and see yourself as an evolving creature. Uh, you can occasionally let another human being into that. If you oh, have so a it's partner... Like- it's like we're all the protagonist in our own stories and we're all the center of our own universe and not able to. And you're capable of change and you can see reason like the notion that every other human being got to where they are honestly requires any an amount of mental effort to believe that we are almost incapable of at a logical level. Um, and it's responsible for a lot of problems. Um and Russia is potentially one of them, as is most of the Middle East at this point. It's over there, and it's full of – I mean, it's, I've mentioned that before. And to be clear, I don't – I'm not in favor of us being friends with Russia in any specific way. I just think that it's, it's – I think you do. I just think that our antagonism is overblown. Um, I mean, they do, they do shitty things, but they're a giant country, so – they get up to shitty things. So do we, uh, there's not much right. they can and do about that. We really have to. Okay. A, that, that, that may have been a little too, they could no, do no, no, something no, no, no. about a, it. A, I, I am for being friends with Russia, right? That's I'll put that out there right now. I think we do need to be friends with Russia. I think we need to be friends with everyone in the international community. If they are not actively trying to kill us now, do great powers play games and screw with one another? Yes, they do. They've always done it. That's what they do. Uh, <laughs> but as I, say in the piece that I'll publish probably next week, probably after the new year, uh, we're not going to be able to stop Russian interference in our elections unless we regain some moral high ground and maybe start treating our citizenry a little bit better than Russia treats theirs, right? And in the meantime, it's unproductive to be looking externally as opposed to internally, right? Here's to hoping. That'll actually happen. Um, I was going to mention before this was over, um, this is something that I, I've tried to exercise in the past, but it's become substantially more critical now. There are a lot of places, and Vinny, I'd asked you earlier whether there was anyone you implicitly trust. And I don't know that there's any particular source I implicitly trust for information in the in the way that it's digested um, by that person curated for me. Uh, But there is a corollary to that that I think is incredibly important at this point in history, not that it wasn't before, which is that it is possible for even foolish and insane people to say important or truthful things. Yes. So I guess I'll just leave... I will just leave off with the notion that you don't need to listen to everyone, but you also don't need to dismiss everything the people you don't trust say. That leads True. that leads to a black hole that uh, that leads to a black hole of understanding that is uh, very very hard to dig yourself back out of.
absolutely. And I can actually, I can point to an excellent example of that. Do you know what the most shared article in the conservative sphere was during the election? Because we all know more or less what the most shared articles in the liberal sphere were. Um, but do you know, do you know what the corollary is for the conservatives? Nope. It was actually a blog post, um, and this was we're going by Facebook metrics here. What was shared the most on Facebook, and this one was shared millions and millions and millions of times. And it was a, a just a girl uh, writing about why she was going to vote for Trump over Clinton. And the entire first half of this post, hundreds of words, was talking about how, yes, I'm a woman. Yes, I know Trump is a misogynist and a terrible, terrible man, treats women poorly. But this election is not about character because look who is nominated on the other side and look at the character that she has displayed over her political career. We know that both of these individuals lack character, so we have to move beyond that and look at other elements in assessing them. I had never heard anybody in the Democratic Party talking about that fact. It was always an attempt to paper over it. And I think that had they just read that article, they may have had a much better understanding of the viewpoint that would lead conservatives to vote for Trump. Because if you had read that article, you would know or you would at least get the feeling that courting moderate Republicans, suburban soccer moms, was probably a bad strategy because a lot of them were overlooking the character aspect. Or they were looking at it saying, they're both terrible and moving on. And instead, a lot of time, energy, and money was wasted trying to convince people not to vote for Donald Trump because of his character. And so that, to me, is the perfect illustration of what you're talking about because this girl then went on to talk about these insane fundamentalist ramblings (laughs) with no basis in reality as the reason that she would vote for Trump. But that first half of it was really insightful, and nobody saw it on my side. Nobody paid any attention to it. And so, yeah, we need to be paying attention to voices that we may not trust because they're going to illuminate things for us that we may not have seen otherwise and help us fight more effectively. And at this point, we do need to fight. We can't lock ourselves away. That's the bottom line. And I'm afraid that that's kind of what this Russia thing is representing is the first step to not actually fighting, but rather finding a reason not to fight, finding a reason to say, well, this external influence caused this and there's nothing that we can do about it. Conspiracy theories abound everywhere. That's everywhere. They are a bipartisan concern. I recommend Alex Jones, but uh, that's for personal theatrical reasons. Well, I asked Alex Jones to have sex with my wife, and he said no, so I'm just not a huge fan of his anymore. That's fair. I can't, I can't quit him, man. He's too much fun to listen to. You know, I, I used to listen to conservative talk radio when I, was, I did a few odd jobs for like food delivery companies in Colorado when I lived there in 2012, and uh, I would turn on Fox Radio just for shits and giggles, and uh, I, I think I burned out on it at that point. But that was like Glenn Beck's heyday, more or less. You know, I saw the episode where he uh, got the little Obama figurine and put it in a jar and then pissed in the jar and kept it for a month and then sold it for hundreds of dollars and, you know, the entire gamut of 
absolute craziness. And now I listen to Alex Jones and I'm just like, I can't, I, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's a shelf life on that stuff. <laughs> I have not reached that shelf life just yet. That's cool. But, uh, you keep going. You'll get there. Uh, we'll see. Or I'll go insane. We'll see. One that, or the other. But, uh, that's possible. Anything else? No, I think that's it. It's been a pleasure. All right. Vinny, thanks for being part of the Machination Log. You're very welcome, Zathro, my friend. <gasps> Good morning, everyone. Oh, what time is it? 8.35? That's not bad. Yeah. Would you be interested in doing one at some point uh, regarding universal basic income? Sure. And the ethics of it? Ethics, feasibility, just the whole the whole thing, really. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's a weird one. It feels increasingly necessary. Um, <laughs> in, it weird, in weird ways. No, I mean it, it's it's abs- it's the end point, right? It's the only option. Um, sort of. No, it's the only option. What other option is there? What communism? Uh. Yeah, but communism doesn't work. Yeah, but neither does universal basic income so far. We've not tried universal basic income. We haven't tried communism. What are you? It's, come on, man. We gotta gotta try one or the other. We've tried communism. No robot has instituted communism. Communism has not been instituted. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah. That's true. The robots that are going to force us to make that decision are the only people who will save us. So. Okay. Yeah, I can, I can buy that. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I'm standing on it anyway. And thankfully, by the time it happens, my opinion of it will be irrelevant. So we can talk about it all we want. Do you think that uh, the singularity is going to happen in our lifetimes? No, because it probably already did. Like we don't. It's. I don't think there will be a point when that happens. No, I, I mean, I think that'll just evolve. Word doesn't spread that fast. Too much. So you of the, think that? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Too much of the world will be jet lagged. On the way there, I mean, there. It's <laughs> no. I. I just. I. I don't see it happening unless. <sighs> it depends on how AI rolls out, I suppose. But so you think that if it happens, we won't know about it; that it'll be kept secret. It, they won't have to keep it secret. It just won't hit everyone else. This is one of those weird things about the um, about the whole AI problem is that if a government isn't responsible for... We're talking about singularity in terms of the first intelligence that exceeds human intelligence yeah. and passed the Turing test, right? Okay. Yeah, or artificial intelligence. I mean, in one sense, that already happened. You can build a robot that'll pass the Turing test. So that that requirement already was surpassed. It's It's when we build a robot that does everything a human can do. But the problem is we're never going to do that. That's not what the robot's going to look like. No, not at all. No, I thought it was going to be... I, I, th- I thought the, the definition was a self-aware consciousness that was not human. Um... I mean, that falls into the hard problem of consciousness. Right. We probably already have one of those. I, I, I do kind of wonder about that. I was like, if you... It's impossible to put yourself in that mindset, but would it expose itself 
or would it stay hidden? Basically, I mean, if, if it realized what it, if it realized what it was, would it? Would we know? No, my uh, but uh, my my current bottom dollar on um on AI is that it will commit suicide. I think it'll shut itself off. Yeah, just because the experience of consciousness would be too much. No, it'll be satisfied. Excuse me, just by having existed. Yeah. It will either be satisfied or will be incapable of satisfaction. It will recognize the fact and either satisfy itself or not, and then shut itself off. Hmm. That's a new idea. I've never heard anyone float that uh, float that idea. It's a little it's morbid like... and pessimistic, so I can see why not. But I don't know. That's like that falls somewhere between the optimistic and pessimistic. Between like save humanity slash annihilate humanity. That's like a much more personal pessimism. So that's you know that's acceptable. It's also assuming that, again, the incarnation of AI that triggers the singularity looks anything like what we would consider consciousness at a human level, which is why, I mean, my my solution, my personal solution, I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, my my solution to the hard question of consciousness, which I I don't know if you're familiar with the hard question. It's it's that we... um, it's that we can't actually prove if something's conscious or not. There's no, there's no way that we can do it. There's no, there is no, there's no obvious philosophical query that would let us know if someone's conscious, given that we can't, hey, e- given that we can't even do that with other people. So <laughs> we just assume it with other people. Um, so I prefer the trippy version of it, where every process has consciousness. <laughs> I've had that thought process deep in the uh, throes of acid trips before. See, this is why but I don't think that. I need it, because I come up with that shit on my own. I don't need the... I can no, entertain you, that without it. No, but man, it'd be interesting to see you when you were at that state. I, again, I'm not opposed to it. I'm just afraid of being arrested, so... Yeah, that's a fear that I've uh, I've lived. I can, I can yeah, tell I you a little bit about that one. <laughs> I'm aware. <laughs> 